That's great. Old Dr. Ruckman used to play the harmonica, and I've been in Bible conferences with him years ago, and he'd get up before he'd preach, he'd play a harmonica. Everybody looked forward to it, you know. <laughs> he wasn't quite as spiritual as John. John played a great hymn. Ruckman would give you an SS march, but it was, uh, it was always good stuff, and I, I remember those days. Now, last week, uh, we had uh, one of, I think, the greatest uh, studies on the story of Jesus walking on the water. And it's a story, as I said last week, everybody knows the story, but most people never put it into the biblical context of what it really is. And, uh, and we saw how that the disciples, just like us many times, uh, they found themselves in the midst of a terrible storm. And, you know, as you just read the story it, at face value, that's basically all you have. But when you really begin to develop it, and, uh, and you see how inspirationally it was a great picture of our lives and what we go through on the sea of life. And I showed you how that, that little boat, the type of Christ, they were in the boat in Christ, picture of the church age. This storm took place in the middle of the night. Obviously, the church age is the middle of the night, uh, nighttime in the Bible. And I also told you that we have storms in our lives, and I think this was probably something that we really needed to focus on last week, and I hope we did, is the fact that I told you how that we have storms in our lives for two fundamental reasons. Most people never can get to this point. Uh, first of all, we have storms in our lives because of our own doing. You know, I, I, I can't emphasize to anybody, whether you're saved or you're lost, and I, I have spoken to a lot of guys who were either in prison or they were in programs getting out of prison. And, you know, and I, and I try to tell everybody who saved or lost that life is about choices. Life is about the choices we make. And the goal of everybody, saved or lost, ought to be to get through life making as few of bad choices as we can. And, of course, an unsaved man, he has no ability to make good choices. Uh, even the good choices he makes are going to wind him up in the lake of fire if he don't get saved. And, but saved people, they have the ability to make the right choices. It, it always amazed me how that God gave us as Christians the Holy Spirit of God living inside us, obviously to lead and guide us to all truth. He gave us the Word of God, which is the truth. And when you put the two of them together and then slap you into a New Testament Bible-believing local church, there isn't any reason for God's people to make the bad choices that they make. But we do. And, and that is the main reason why storms come into our life. Our life uh, because of the bad choices we make that puts us the violation of biblical principles. And uh, I, I, I feel like I, I, I watch the news a couple of times a day. I watch it for, to see what's going on in the world. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I always watch the weather because we have so much stuff that's weather-related. And every time I see the weather guy get up there and he starts showing you this big map, and it's, it's a thing where it's like this, and here's Kansas City, you know, and all the other outlying areas, and you can see where the storms are, and he tells you that there's storms coming to Kansas City. And they have what they call a Doppler radar, which picks up the storms. And you can actually see them moving, and they'll do real-life things like that. Every time I see that guy, whoever it may be, 
I think of myself on Sunday morning and Thursday night because when there's bad weather coming, he's always giving, uh, he's always giving uh, storm advisories. And I think that that's what I do every Sunday morning. There's a storm advisory in your life. Storms are going to come. And you better make sure <clears throat> that it's not because of the violation of the biblical principles. And then the second reason <clears throat> uh, we have storms is because it's God's doing. God's allowing the storms in our lives, and we see this many, many times in the Bible. I mentioned the book of Job last week. Job was a righteous man that eschewed evil, but he went through a terrible time. Paul's another example in the New Testament. He was called by God, almost did everything that God wanted him to do, except going down to Jerusalem, faithful, took a stand for the Word of God, but there was many storms in his life. And I'm telling you, if there's going to be storms in our lives, and there's going to be, my advice to you as your weatherman, don't have them because you do the wrong things. Allow God to bring the storms into your life because you do the right things. Because through those, you'll grow. Through those, God will get the honor and the glory out of it, and you'll accomplish something for him that, that uh, you won't necessarily accomplish when you have to go through it for the bad things. And I, I showed you how that he sent the disciples into this storm by design. It was all orchestrated. It was something that he had a goal for them that he wanted them to see. And in that case, we know that it was because of the hardness of their hearts. And yet we see the picture of us today uh, many times in our relationship with God. We go through the things, the storms of life because of the hardness of our hearts. You know, and yet in all of that, God's number one rule, whether you're out of fellowship this morning or you're in fellowship, whatever state you're in, if you're saved, God's number one rule is restoration. God's in the fixing business. He fixed us at salvation when our soul was broken, and he wants to fix us through life when things go wrong in our life that we can get back on track. And restoration is the bottom line. So we see in this story, he sends them out in a ship in the middle of the sea. He goes up into a mountain. I told you that's a picture of Hebrews, spiritual Mount Zion. And he's praying for them. He's making intercession for them like he does for us. And uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a great story. And I think the greatest truth last week that I hope you carried out of here if you carried nothing else is that what a picture this story is of the Laodicean church period. Now, I didn't get into this last week, but in Mark chapter 13, you have a story of, of him uh, when Christ comes. And it says in verse 34, for the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey. That's the church age. He's in heaven now, far from us. We're down here. Who left his house, that'll be the nation of Israel and gave authority to his servants to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. That would be us. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. Now, he, he, he lays this church age, 2,000 years, out into four watches. And if you broke it down, it would go from 6 to 9, that would be the evening, uh, and then twelve to mid, uh, uh, 9 to 12, that would be the midnight, 12 to 2 would be the cock rowing, and then uh, 3 to 6 would be the morning. 
And any night you go out at whatever time, it breaks down into that concept. Now, if you put it into church history, that the first one, 6 to 9, the evil would go up to 500 A.D. The second one would go from 500 to 1,000. And the third one would go from, you know, 1,000 up to 1,500. And then the last one would be 1,600 to the rapture of the church. He comes in the fourth watch, according to Mark chapter 13. So, in our story last week, with the disciples in the boat, picture me and you, in the storm of life, which we are in, he comes walking on that water in the fourth watch, and the water being the great deep, picture of the rapture of the church. And the thing that amazed me last week that I hope you took home with you is when he comes to them, the disciples who represent the church, me and you, in the Laodicean church period right now, they didn't even recognize who he was. He had a past right on. In fact, they were afraid. They thought the guy that they had been following, the guy that they were supposed to love, the guy that was supposed to be hanging on every word, they thought he was a spirit. And I'm telling you right now, when the rapture of the church comes, the latest in church is going to miss the whole thing. I mean, they're going to go. But they are gonna, they're going to miss who he really is because it's all a game. It's all a farce. It's all pretend. There's no real Bible-based, for the most part, relationship with Christ today. How do you do that when you don't even have a Bible? How do you do that when you go to a church where the guy will give you 20 minutes of a sermon and an hour and a half of a halftime show at the Super Bowl? I mean, this is where we're at. And you can't be exposed to that. You can't watch that and not lose your perspective of who he really is. Now, today... We're going to look at, there's so many things in John chapter 6, and today we're going to look at the great discord in this chapter that lays out Christ as the bread of life. And we saw him in John 4 as the water of life. Now we're going to see him uh, laid out as the bread of life. And as we study him as our bread of life, there will be many other things that God will reveal to us as we, we lay this out. This is going to be a lesson today that's going to show you how you connect the New Testament passage like in John 6 with the Old Testament and then connect the dots to get an incredible study out of it that hopefully uh, we can all benefit from. So let's start out by reading. and We're going to do a lot of reading today. Let's start out reading John chapter 6, verse 27 through 58, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. It says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, uh, for him hath God uh, the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that shall believe on him whom he hath set. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou that we may see or believe thee that thou doest thou work? Then they go on and say, verse 31, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven to giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you uh, that ye also have seen me and believe not. 
All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him <coughs> that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have received everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which cometh down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can uh, come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the, the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore hath, uh, he, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, which he which is of God, hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If a man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread uh, that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Bless our time today. Put us under the blood that we may be able to receive all that you have for us. We love you, Father, and we ask you now, Father, to uh, bring us uh, to the great reality of, of the Word of God today. Show us, show these good people uh, how we can take a passage in John 6 and then connect it uh, by what he says back to the Old Testament and learn a great lesson uh, for our lives and our relationship with you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in this story, Jesus will lay himself out as the manna from heaven. You'll see this in the verses we just read, 31, 32, 33, 41, and 49. And he makes a reference to the bread that God braid down in the Old Testament and gave to the nation of Israel. Now, uh, we have to see here that he makes the parallel between the Old Testament when God gave Israel the manna from heaven that that was a picture in the Old Testament of what he is coming to them now as the bread of life uh, and the word of God, John chapter 1, 1. We're reminded in John chapter 4, verse 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In the Bible, among any other, many other things, bread is a picture of the word of God. Now, to fully develop this great concept, we must go back to the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus, for me, and if you have going through my outlines of the Bible, we do uh, this book very carefully because I feel how important it is. But we, uh, the book of Exodus is an incredible book for every New Testament Christian. And, uh, and you, 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 you wouldn't think that because many times in our limited capacity of thinking about the Bible... We think there's such a vast difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, in some things there are, but it all goes together. And you will find that many times in the Old Testament you will find stories 
illustrations, we call them types, that will illustrate the New Testament principles. And the book of Exodus is, is, is one of those books. I honestly know of no other book that chapter by chapter will show you and detail out for you every aspect of our life from before we were saved right up till after we get saved. And it's a simple chapter by chapter outline. I mean, it really, it really is. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if all you had, you just got saved and you wanted to figure out the Christian life, if all you had was an understanding of the book of Exodus, you would have everything that you need. You would have everything in place, everything that you need to walk away and completely understand every aspect of your Christian life. Watch. Let me, let me, let me walk you through this. It's a total picture of New Testament Christianity. You have an Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. You know what you have here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through all these, because, but you have Israel under the bondage of Egypt. Now, we know that Egypt's the type of the world. And what we have here is the nation of Israel, which we're told in Exodus chapter 4 is God's son, under the harsh bondage of Egypt was a picture of the world system. What you have here is a picture of your life and my life before we got saved, when we were under the hard taskmasters of this world that cared nothing about you, cared nothing about your family, that lived for one thing, and that was to put you under bondage, make you a slave to it, and under a cruel taskmaster, destroy you, the world system. So we see that in 1, 2, and 3 of the first three chapters. What happens in chapter 4, 5, and 6? Okay, Israel gets to a point where they cry out to God. The bondage of Egypt, like you and me, the desolation of the world was so bad in their life. They lost generations after generations of their families. They were whipped. They're beaten. They're worked 80 hours a week. They're starved to death. They're crushed under great boulders. And they cry out to God. And God hears that cry, and he sends them a deliverer. And, of course, we know that deliverer is Moses. And just as Israel suffered under the bondage of the world, and God sent them a deliverer, before you and I got saved, we cried out to God. We couldn't take it anymore. The world had wrecked your life, put you under a, a, a slave of drugs or alcohol, taken your family, done all kinds of terrible things, took your health, and you cried out. And just like the nation of Israel, God gave us a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came down to die on the cross just as Moses, who's a type of Christ, came to the nation of Israel to lead you and me out of this world through the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Then in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, whoa, now we see what happens. The adversary shows up. Who's that? Pharaoh. What's he represent? He represents the devil. Where Egypt represents the world system, Pharaoh represents the devil in the world system. And if you know anything about Egyptian history, Pharaoh is running Egypt, just like the devil runs the world. And what does he do? Tries to keep them from going. He says, I'm not going to let him go. And you know what happens in these chapters? And maybe you don't know this yet because you're still young, but you got saved. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to get saved. But you know, you don't probably see this. You know right now there's a battle going on for your soul. Egypt doesn't want to let you go. 
Pharaoh doesn't want to let you go. God sent the deliverer down to get you out of the bondage of this world, but the devil wants to hold on to you. And I've always found it interesting that what, what they go through, you know. Moses goes to him and says, let him go. He says, I ain't going to let him go. They go back and forth. They bring all of the things down on them, you know, the frogs, the lice, the blood, water to blood, and all that stuff. And it's always been amazing to me that you see this. Pharaoh didn't want to let him go. But there come a, and the devil doesn't want to let you go. But there comes a time when he knows he's going to lose you, and Pharaoh knew the inevitable. So you know what Pharaoh said? He says, okay, I'll let you go. Just don't go too far. And that's exactly what the devil will tell you. Well, I'm glad you got saved. I'm glad you're going to that church. I'm glad you got the right Bible. But don't become a fanatic about it. That's how it works. Oh, it's a great study. Great study. And then what happens in Exodus chapter 12? Wow, picture of our salvation. We've been through this many, many times. The blood of a lamb. They come out of Egypt, the type of the world, by the blood of the lamb. And you got out of the world system and got saved through the blood of a lamb. And God leads them out, just like he led you out, just like he led me out. They had to take that blood and they had to put it on the south side post and put it at the top. You got that blood over here and you got that big door, the door frame here and God said, I want blood here and I want blood here and I want blood here. Somebody says, why did they just put it all over the bloody door? Why did they just put it everywhere? You know why? Here, here, and here because on Calvary, there's three thieves that are crucified. You got one thief here, one thief here. Christ is numbered with them, but he's deity. He's higher than they are. Your salvation. And they came out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb. You come out of the world through the blood of the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then what happens? Oh, it gets good. Now, once you got saved, we will study to see now the key aspects in our lives as Christians after salvation, chapter by chapter. In chapter 13, they come out in chapter 12. In chapter 13, we talk about their sanctification. Now they're told to separate from the world. You know what happened the day you got saved? God sanctified you. What does that mean? He separated you from the world, just like chapter 13. You know what happens in the next chapter, chapter 14? They get baptized. You know what should happen after you got saved? You had to get baptized. Now, we haven't baptized for a while because of the virus and all the stuff that was going on, but coming up very soon, we get into the fall, we've got a ton of people who are going to be baptized. We're going to have a special night, great time, and we're going to baptize about 30 people. And it's going to be a great time for everybody that needs to get baptized, and we're going to, we're going to do that because that's exactly what needs to happen. And then in chapter 15, you know what happened? They get a new song. That's called the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You know what the song of Moses is, the new song is to you? It's a new song he put into your heart. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord and cried unto him, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and he had put a new song in my mouth. We sing about it every Sunday. There's people out there that don't like the old songs anymore. They like the new stuff. They like the stuff that, you know, that's, it's out of the pit of hell, and they try to put some Christian meaning behind it. They don't like the old songs that we sing. You know why they don't like it? Because it's about the blood. It's about you coming out of the world. It's about doctrine and God changing your life. But they don't like that. See, they want that new stuff. 
They want that stuff that goes along with the world. Never happened here. I've got a list of churches that I can send you to that you can have all that funny stuff you want. But it won't happen here. Chapter 16, we see the Word of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. In chapter 17, we now see once you are saved, you're sanctified, and now we see and understand your prayer life through the great battle of Amalek. And what a picture that is of our prayer life. In chapter 18, we see the people that you have to deal with in ministry. And we see it through the great story of Jethro and Moses. We see getting the, getting the instructions of the Word of God or getting the instructions of the Word of men. And yet I'll tell you this, in every Bible college you will go to, and 99.999% of the churches you will go to, they will tell you that story of Jethro giving Moses advice is a great story. And they actually tell young pastors that's the way to operate. That was the worst advice that he ever got. There was nothing biblical about it, but that shows you. What you're getting today in most churches, and certainly in the upper annals of, uh, of, of, of Bible colleges, is the teaching of men, not the teaching of God. Then in chapter 19, verse 24, they talk about the law. And we need to understand, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 tells us that the law was our schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. And it's an incredible tale. In chapter 25 through chapter 27, we see the great chapters on the tabernacle. I, I, I don't know of any place else in the Bible that shows you how your body should function and the furnishings that you should put, seven of them, in your, inside your soul once you get saved. There were three compartments to that, to that tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy holies. When you got saved, you have a body, soul, and spirit, and they all match up. Chapter 28 through chapter 31, he talks about the priesthood. If you're saved this morning, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But you need to understand those things. In chapter 32 through chapter 40, oh, now these are the greatest chapters in the Bible on leadership. The work of the ministry. A real study on biblical leadership for God's church. And in this study, you'll find the real key to God developing you to be a leader. Now, I started to tell this during the announcements, but I've been watching you guys now for about a year, maybe a little over that, maybe a year and a half. God has brought a tremendous amount of men and women into our church, and it's a thing where I've watched you get involved, I've watched you come to a point in your life, and now it's time, we've changed everything, we've got the, the Bible a class for the kids, we've got the Timothy ministry, we've got the uh, babies up and running again, we've got things pretty much back to normal as far as our stuff, uh, institutes back online again, we're going to town. It's time now, and I'm going to do this this fall once we get back from Branson, I'm going to take probably two Saturdays and I'm going to... I'm going to hold a leadership conference. I'm going to take, now you need to understand this. You're going to have to apply for this. This is not going to be something on this level where you can just come because you like to box up all the information. There'll be an application. You'll have to fill it out. You'll have to answer some questions and you'll either be approved or you'll be disapproved. It won't be online. We're not going to do it live. It won't be to the place where it'll be uh, on a disc, where it'll be on a YouTube, where you can listen to it. No, it won't be any of that. This is stuff that's going to be down on the level where you live if you're going to be part of this ministry and pick up the mantle and be a leader. 
Uh, it ain't going to be something. And I, it happens in any church, and ours is no different. You've got people out there that all they do is collect information, and they never do anything with it. I'm looking for the men and the women who are going to buy into what we're doing here that I can take you to the next level. And so there'll be an application that you have to fill out and, uh, you know, uh, and be approved on it. And then uh, when we get together, there won't be any outside public it's for us. We're going to talk about things that I would never talk about and put out on the air. You know why? Because we're going to get right down to the nitty-gritty in the, in, the, in the ministry. Name, rank, and serial number. Because you need to know. If you're going to carry this thing on, then, then we need to do it. So put that. I'll keep you advised on that. But that's chapter 32 through chapter 40. And Exodus is some book, chapter by chapter. Now, going back to chapter 16 and connecting it back to John chapter 6, Jesus, is this is where he's making a reference to that they fed, the fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. That's Exodus chapter 16. And now we're seeing Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 31, and a number of places putting himself into that category. Now, what we have to do now is we have to connect that, see? We have to take John 6 and then go back to Exodus chapter 16, and we've got to, to fully develop this. We've got to lay this out. We've got to see how this thing really plays itself out. And in, John, in, in Exodus chapter 16, we find the story that Jesus is making here in its absolute importance of the Word of God. Now, I'm going to read this whole chapter. So that would be a good time to go to the restroom, go get your beer, get some popcorn or whatever you're going to do. The concession stand is open. Here we go. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the uh, land of Egypt. Two weeks, basically. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and we were, did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill us, uh, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it came to pass that on the sixth day, they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto the children of Israel at even, it's at six o'clock, then you shall know that the Lord hath brought, out, uh, brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, when you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he that heareth your murmurings against the Lord, and what are we that ye murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. For that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Now that's very important. You want to mark that. We're going to come back and make a couple little references to that later on. 
Verse 29, See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was wafers made with honey. And Moses spake unto Aaron, say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Now, if that doesn't tell you and tie into the Lord Jesus Christ, it's always connected with a cloud, and you need to go back to square one. And the Lord said unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speak unto them, saying, And even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at even the quails came up, covered the camp, and in the morning the dew uh, lay uh, round about the, the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, there was the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. That's snow, by the way. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man uh, according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which is in his tents. And the children of Israel did so. Some gathered uh, uh, and gathered, some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered it had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack, and they gathered every man according to his eating. And Moses said, Let no man leave it until the morning. Notwithstanding, they're Baptists, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was wroth with them, and they gathered it every morning, uh, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. And it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Uh, bake that which ye will bake today, and see that you will seethe, and you will remain over, lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up until the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. And Moses said, Eat that uh, today, for today uh, is the Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Six days shall ye gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, it shall uh, be none. And it came, that's a, great, that's a great thing for the millennium, but we don't have time to get into it today. Why is there no Bible in the millennium? Oh, I don't have time to get into that one. And it came to pass that uh, there went out some other people on the seventh day to gather, and they found none. These are Baptists, man. These are Baptists. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? And the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years, until they did eat manna until they came to the borders of the land of Canaan. And then... If you're ever around a campfire at a neo-evangelical church and everybody is giving their little favorite verses, this has always been mine. Now an omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Great verse. 
And when you ever go someplace and are doing that little dilly stuff, just give them this verse here. And they'll all look at you like you're really spiritual because they'll think you know something about that verse that they don't know. Now, look at Psalms chapter 78, verses 24 and 25. Another little verse on the manna, which gives us a little more insight. And here it says, And he rained down manna upon them to eat, and gave them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat, and here's where it's called, angel's food. He sent the meat to the fool. Now, because of that, it, this thing rained down. It was light, it was fluffy, and it was white, and it tasted kind of sweet. So in the world, we have what we call, based on this verse, angel food cake. Angel food cake is very light, very fluffy, and uh, it's a worldly imitation of the manna. And not being outdone that we would have angel's food cake. And then, of course, the world also has devil's food cake. And it's always dark because of the darkness of this world. So it's a thing where, and there's the thing where you just can't get away from the Bible. Now, as we read John chapter 6 about Christ being the bread of life, now we're able to connect the dots. Now we're able to go back to Exodus chapter 16 and unearth some tremendous material on the Word of God and the bread of life in the form of manna to them and how it pictures Christ and the Word of God to us. Now this is a lesson in Bible study. This is a lesson of comparing Scripture with Scripture to connect the dots. And as I already said, the book of Exodus itself is a tremendous book, chapter by chapter, to put it in a context for us, the Christian life. But oh my, wait till we get into chapter 16. Now there's a number of things here that we want to look at, and we'll move through these pretty quickly. But the first thing I want you to see in chapter 16, we're back to Exodus 16 now, where the manna comes down, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that we are in the wilderness of sin. Now, that is a picture, after you get saved, of the life that you live on this planet. In the wilderness of sin, for the nation of Israel, when they come out of Egypt, it was, there was no water, there was no food. The temperature was a burning 120 degrees during the day and freezing at night. That's the way it is over there. There was absolutely nothing to sustain them. That is a picture, after we come out of Egypt, you move into the wilderness of sin. There isn't a thing in this world once you get saved that's going to sustain you. There's nothing for you here. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. And the child of God, we now get absolutely no nourishment or strength from the world. Now, I know we, we deceive ourselves and we think we do, but we don't. There was no water. So back in the last chapter, he strikes a rock and the water comes out of the rock. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that that rock was Christ. It's another study. There's no food. There's no shelter. It's a complete desolate life now that they have left Egypt. And it's a picture, the wilderness of sin is a picture of what we live in after we get saved. And so what does God do? God knew that there was nothing naturally in the wilderness of sin for his people to eat or drink. So what does he do? He brings a supernatural food to them. And in chapter 4, we see being talked about the manna. And the first thing we see about it, that that manna was a supernatural gift of God to them from God. 
like the Word of God is to you and me. Now, you read that in the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament principle, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Which cause also, thank be God without ceasing. For when you receive the Word of God, which you have heard of us, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, God's Word, our manna from heaven. And just like in Israel back there when they come out of Egypt in the wilderness of sin, there was nothing to eat. After you get saved, there's not one thing in this world that's going to sustain you. So what did God do? Brought you and me the supernatural Word of God, the bread from heaven in the form of the Word of God. Man said one time, if you took all of the literature that man has written for the last 6,000 years and you stacked it in a pile, he said you'd have a base that would be the size of the state of Nebraska, and then you'd have a stack that would go out past the orbit of the moon, which is 250,000 miles. Now, if that was possible, if that was true, you could put all of those books that were written by man in one pile, that height, and you could judge everybody, every one of those in the light of one book, and that'd be the Word of God, the manna from heaven that God has given us. I, I told you... I think it was an institute last time we were together, uh, that over in the Paris Library, there's five and a half miles on shelves. If you would lay them end to end, five and a half miles of scientific textbooks that were written in the 60s. And by the 1980s, every one of them was obsolete, worthless. You see, it all changes in the world. And again, you could take everything science book that you ever get your hands on and it's called science falsely so-called in the Bible and the greatest scientific book is this book right here. And you could judge every one of them. You know, it never changes. And that's why, as I said in 2 Timothy 6.20, you find science falsely so-called. Now the third thing, verse 16. God brought it right to where the people were. They're in a wilderness of sin. They don't have anything to eat. God sees their need and gives them a supernatural feeding of the bread of life called man in the Old Testament, called a King James 1611 in the New Testament. I want you to notice that he brought the man of the Word of God right there where they were. There was no scholarship needed. They didn't have to show their, their, their college certification card to get it. No scholarship needed to get the book. No education, no degree, no Dead Sea Scrolls, no Greek, no Hebrew, no seminary, no Bible college. God just brought the living Word of God right to where the common man was in his world. That's what he did with the Bible. And we allow the great facilitators of this world who are spiritually corrupt to take that Bible from you that God gave you just like the manna from heaven. Fourth thing, the manna was to be gathered every morning before anything else. You'll find that in verse 21. Now, their day started with the food that God gave them to get the, through the wilderness of sin that day. There were things they were going to have to do, places they were going to have to go, things they were going to have to deal with. And they had to have the strength of God before they did anything else. Preparing yourself for your day's journey. Getting up in the morning and the first thing you do is to get into that book for a little bit and get something that God has for you. And off you go. That's exactly what you have here, preparing yourself for your day's journey with the bread of life, God's manna from heaven. You see these little booklets, and they used to be passed out. They're still around. I'm not, and this is not a criticism of them, but they were called your daily breads. And I'm not criticizing them at all. 
And uh, there were a little book that, um, that, that you passed out, and they had little things in there for the, every day. And, and some people really enjoyed them, and some people really liked them. And I'm certainly not criticizing at all, but I am telling you this. When it comes to the Word of God that you're holding in your lap with everything that God has for you, your daily bread is nothing but breadcrumbs compared to the whole loaf you've got. But if that's what people want to do, then that's what they want to do. For me... My daily bread is the Word of God, and uh, that's what I go. I don't need somebody to put an outline of what, I need, what verses I need to read today. And uh, you don't program your Christian life by a schedule. You program your Christian life by the Holy Spirit of God when you open that book in the morning and the Holy Spirit of God comes down and leads and guides you into all truth. Well, the fifth thing. Verse 4, it had to be gathered in the morning, but it had to be gathered daily. You couldn't take, let's say on Monday... And because you didn't want to really go out and work and labor the rest of the week, you just got a big pile of it on Monday to last you through Friday. It didn't work that way. In fact, some people tried to do that, and it didn't work. It bred worms, and it stunk. And it goes to show you that Romans, a great New Testament principle, again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we need to renew our mind daily. Uh, you, 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 every day is going to change in your life. You're going to take it one day at a time, and you need to have the fresh Word of God every day of your life for your personal walk with God. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, God's daily injection in your life and my life. When you get up in the morning, that God gives you the injection. You got some people, you know, when they get up in the morning, they, they got diabetes, so they got to get their insulin injection. You got some people get up in the morning and they take vitamins, you got some people in the morning, they got to take their meds because of whatever medical condition that they have. And if you don't, I mean, I have to do it. The older you get, the more you're going to do. I mean, um, I started out when I was 50 with just taking the few I had to take. Now I'm up to one of them big pill boxes. <laughs> and it's Monday through, Monday through Sunday. And I had one for a long time, but it didn't hold enough. My doctor's got me on so many meds now, I look like people mistake me for Walgreens. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> but you got to do it. I mean, the older you get, the more problems you got. And I won't bore you with my problems today, but uh, it, it's, they're quite interesting. <laughs> and it's a thing where if I don't take them, my day gets even more interesting. <laughs> and uh, it's a thing where uh, you just, you just got to do it. And I know, I don't like it. I really don't. And I would like to be off meds. and I get off some I can get off. Some, some I get, will get off in time. Some I'm going to be on the rest of my life. And as you get older, you're going to have to do it too. And when you don't take them, it's a thing where, you know, you, you're just going to have some problems. I would. I do. And that's why I have my little thing I don't forget because I forget. You know, I, 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 so I have my little thing there. And I, you know what's really bad? I have one pill box upstairs and I have another one downstairs with different pills. And it's a thing where I don't like it. I, I don't. I wish. I'll be glad when I get my new glorified body that it'll be pillless. But right now, I'm, 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 you have to take them. But it's a thing where, you know, it's a thing where you, 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 you have to do that with the Word of God. If I don't take all my pills by the two weeks or a week, I'll, I'll be in sad shape. And you know what? You know what puts God's people in sad shape? Because you refuse to take the medicine that God has for you to get your daily injection. And you got to do it every day, and it's good to do it in the morning. And uh, it's a thing where when you do that, then, you know, it, it, it works better for you. It's just that simple. Now, the, the sixth thing is that 
uh, even uh, though it came to right where they were, uh, they had to labor to get it. And now the New Testament principle for this will be study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, right dividing the word of truth. They had to open up the tent door in the morning and it was laying all around. I mean, they just didn't lay out there with their mouth open and it fell in. They had to bend over, stoop over, pick it up. They had to labor to gather it. They had to do the work to get it. And that's what we need to do. We study to show thyself approved, a workman. Rightly dividing the word of truth. They had to get out of the tent and go get it and put it into whatever they were putting it in. And even though God brought it to them, they had to labor to get it. And God gave you the supernatural gift. He brought the manna right to where you are. Your education doesn't count in anything. Nothing, the only thing that counts is your attitude of heart, the fact that you're going to get it, and then you labor to get it. It's just that simple. So you can see how this chapter just parallels to what the Lord said in John 6. Now the seventh thing, verse 4. God gave the manna to them to prove what they would do with it. Now, the Word of God, God gave it to us for a lot of things. There's no question about that. Oh, I could list them all day today, all the benefits of the Word of God. But you know what the number one benefit that God gave the Word of God? He wanted to see what you and I do with it. That book proves you. It proves what you supposedly comes out of your mouth. Oh, I love God, but you never open his book. Oh, I love God, but you don't do anything that's in it. Oh, I love the Lord. I go to church. I'm a Christian. But when push comes to shove and you've got issues, you don't go to it. You see, that book is the most damning thing in your life and my life that we don't even know. Because when we don't do it, it proves us. God gave the manna to prove them. And the Bible says, verse 17, some gathered more, some less. That's the way it'll be with God's people. God brought it to them, uh, but it was their choice to pick it up or to trample it under their feet. I mean, that's just the way it works. Now, the next thing, verse 14, and I love this one. I love them all, but I like this one. It was small. I mean, who can imagine if the Bible's the mind of Christ, the mind of God, if the Bible contains everything that God is, and it does, like the manna coming down from heaven, how amazing is it? that we can get the magnitude of God's mind in a book this size or a smaller one. I had it one time. I lost it. It was so small. I don't know where it's at. But I had the whole Bible on a little microfilm thing. I mean, it was one inch by one inch. But the whole Bible, 31,176 verses, was on that little microcard. And I'm thinking to myself, the mind of God in a book that I can carry in my back pocket. That was the manna. It was small. And it rained down from heaven. And the next thing, verse 3, it said it was like snow, called hoarfrost in the Old English, white. You'll find the references for this in Job chapter 38, verse 22, Psalms 147, 16, and Job chapter 38, verse 29. And it stands for the purity of the Word of God. It's pure. Psalms 127, verse 2 says the world will eat the bread of sorrows. Boy, that is true. It says that the world will eat the bread of sorrows. 
But for us, Psalms 119.140, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. For us, Psalms 119, verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For us, Psalms chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to them that put his trust in him. And it tasted like honey. It was small, it was white for purity, and it came down supernaturally from God to heaven. And it was the strength for everything they had to do. Now, the next thing, verse 15. They didn't know what it was. Now, the New Testament principle for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, where it says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Now we see a picture that the, the world looks at the Bible. Many of God's people look at the Bible. They don't understand it. They can't figure it out. It's, it means nothing to them. And that's because the Bible says that it, the things in the Word of God, this supernatural gift, they're spiritually discerned. And I know that every Christian uh, has the Spirit of God, but I'm going to tell you right now, just because you have the Spirit of God doesn't mean you have spiritual discernment. This is why some of God's people going back to the choices, making the most biggest, stupidest choices that you could ever want in life. They're saved, but they don't have the spiritual discernment. An unsaved man or woman never could have it. And when it comes to God's supernatural manna coming bread from heaven, the natural man cannot receive it. <clears throat> the natural man can't know it because he has no spiritual discernment. Then the next thing we see in this chapter in verse 8, Oh, the parallels here are incredible. John says, John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When you connect the dots back to Exodus chapter 16 and the book of Exodus itself, the chapter 16, wow. Now you're seeing a story develop, a study develop. And if I would, could encourage you, if you ever want to get a book that really lays these things out and many other things out, get the book by Arthur Pink, Gleaning in Exodus. Incredible book. The next thing, the manna, verse 8, the manna had to be eaten to give you strength. You couldn't just lay it on a coffee table so everybody could see you're a Christian when you come in. You couldn't carry it to church on Sunday, take it home Sunday afternoon, put it on the shelf and never open it till you go to church the next Sunday when you have to open it here. Uh, it, it had to be eaten. It had to be taken in. It had to be digested before you could have the strength. Uh, it's it's that, that verse in Psalms 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I may not sin against thee. Where shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thee to according to thy word. You have to do something with it. If all the closed Bibles on the coffee tables and on the shelves in Missouri today, if the dust was knocked off of them, there'd be a dust storm that'd smuggle the crops, man. You kidding me? Because we don't take it in. We don't eat it. We don't digest it. We don't take it in as strength. And that's the problem. Now, the next thing I want you to see, and this is pretty powerful here. We've seen all of these things that God brought this supernatural gift to them, but now I want you to see the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them hated the Word of God. Now, for that, we've got to turn over to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. And uh, this is the source now when we went back here of the murmuring. And, and let me just say this to you. 
the mixed multitude will be the number one danger for every church. You say, how do you know that? Because it was the number one danger for the nation of Israel. The mixed multitude came out with Egypt, out, out of Egypt with them. They really cared nothing about it. I'm not sure why they came out, just like I'm not sure why a lot of God's people go to church. Because the only thing that they ever did was cause problems with God's people. And when you get back there and start to read Exodus 16, they're not out of, they're not out of Egypt two weeks. And they're murmuring already. You know where that murmuring came from? The mixed multitude. Now, the mixed multitude will be the number one problem that every church has to deal with. Fortunately, a good, strong, Bible-believing church will keep the mixed multitude to a very small, but every church has got them. Every church has got them. And it's a thing where good, strong, hard preaching, training young men and young ladies and moms and dads into the Word of God is the, is the greatest defense for it. The first defense for the, the mixed multitude is you. You who love the Word of God, you the book makes a difference to you because, you know, and, and you know, how do you spot somebody that's a mixed multitude? I mean, it's, it's, I mean that's a legitimate question. I mean, I've, we've had all my ministry, I've had them in everything I've ever done. Uh, we've had them here. And uh, it's a thing where, how do you spot them? The number one thing you want to look for with a mixed multitude. Now, I'm going to camp here for just a minute. Is that okay with you? The number one thing you want to look for that everybody has is a bad attitude about everything. They're negative about everything. They come to church, they look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. They're shriveled up. They never smile. They're never happy. Look around. We're all singing the songs and praising the Lord. They ain't singing squat. There's no joy in their heart. And what happens is, and, and, and it's all for various reasons, but I'm telling you right now, it's a thing where negative, negativity is contagious. And, you know, I've seen them all my life, and they're not, they're not, they complain about everything. I had a buddy of mine who is no longer pastoring, but he had, and it, this guy was my friend. I love this kid. But this kid was so negative about everything. And he, he never came to my church, but in his church, he would complain because he thought they were spending too much money on toilet paper. Now, if that's all you've got to do in life, and, I, and that's, your, that's your calling in life, you've got some problems. But I've, they, they complain about everything. Well, it's too hot. Well, it's too cold. Well, you know, it's a thing where, well, you know, he preaches too long. Uh, he preaches too short. And, uh, hey, you know what? I don't know what to tell you. We have church twice a week. If you think my preaching is too long, go someplace else. I don't know what to tell you. I can give you church in Lee Summit where you can get 25 minutes of preaching and be out in good shape. I had a pastor down here in South Kansas City when he took over the church. He promised the people that he would never preach more than 25 minutes so they could get on to lunch. Now, I'll make that even simpler for you. If lunch is your big deal, get out of here. I'm eating the manna from heaven right now. And if you want to, I had a lady one time, we were teaching Proverbs. They left the church because I spent too much time in Proverbs. We spent five, six, 30 years in Proverbs, I think. (laughs) 
and, and they left the church and, and the big thing was, well, he just spends too much time. There's not, how can you get five years of stuff out of Proverbs? And my answer to that is, Proverbs the mind of God. How fast you want to go through that mind. See, you damn yourself with things like that. Somebody says, well, he preaches too long. You're kidding me? Well, okay. How much of God's message would you like me to cut out to you? 30 minutes? You want 20 minutes? What, what would fit your pistol? What would make you happy? And I'm telling you right now, you know what? You don't make people like that happy. And I, when you come here this morning, uh, uh, hopefully, most of you, when you come here this morning, you came here for one reason, I would hope, to get the Word of God. Amen. I would think that's why you came. I, I preached to my, I preached to my, my in-laws' church, and they're, and they're good people, and I, but they're in a mindset. And I was told that I could only preach for 20, 25, 20 minutes. And, and, I, and that's okay with me. And I understand where they're coming from. They don't have any clue about the Bible. And believe me, I can give you a good working over in 20 minutes. So just think what I can do to you in an hour. And I'm telling you right now, go someplace else. Find your little niche someplace where you're happy, where you don't, uh, you know, it, it, it always happens. These, these people, the mixed multitude, they never do anything for God, and yet they're all the experts. They'll criticize you, they'll criticize the church, they'll criticize me. Well, he ought to do this or he ought to do that. Hey, look, go get your own church and you can run it any way you want. This one's mine. God gave this to me. Go get your own. And then you can do whatever you want to do. You can preach five minutes and put out flashcards and watch cartoons. Pass out fudgesicles. I'm okay with that. But I'm telling you right now, you come here on Sunday morning, you come here to get the book. And I make no apologies for that. You don't want it? Find you someplace that there's plenty of them out there. Just open up a Kansas City Star and religious page. It'll say, find the church of your choice. And there'll be a hundred of them. Now, I'll give you a little bit of advice. Don't ever find the church of your choice. Find a good church of God's choice. And I'm telling you, I, and, I, and I know how it works. I watched them through my whole ministry. I'll watch them on Thursday night Bible study. We'll get some guy, mostly guys, we get some guy that comes in, you know, and he's a heretic, or you get somebody who's not doing anything and they're negative about everything, and the first thing they do you start to look for the weak one someplace and then pass off their negativity. I've seen them in Bible study where, the, 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 and I would never have them teach anything. You earn the right to teach here. You don't walk in here and say, well, God showed me things that he's never showed anybody else. Fine, then go show somebody else because I'm not interested. And I've watched them come in here and very sedately just kind of, you know, talk to this person and, and then strike up a conversation. And then in the process of that, once you get your guard down, then they, 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 they do what they're going to do. That is the best way in this church to come into my church, to undermine my ministry, to criticize me. You come to me if you've got a problem. Don't go to my people and don't complain about what you don't like. That is the fastest way to get your head handed in your hand. I'm telling you, that is the biggest problem in churches today. And you know how you stop it? You stop it. 
You drop them in their track. I watched a guy a couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night pass a note to one of my gals about salvation, and he cared nothing about salvation. He wants to get his doctrine into the world, and they're looking for young Christians that they think that they're spiritual, and then invite you over for a Bible study, come over to the house, let's do this. You'll ask questions, you're innocent, and that's how they work. You see, that may work in all the other churches. I'm a sheepdog. I will bite your butt. You say you shouldn't talk like that. I looked it up in the Greek. First line of defense. Because I'm telling you, if you don't think with all that's going on here and the lives that are being changed, and the people who are getting down into the book, if you don't think for... And see, that's a problem. It's so successful. It's running great. Everybody's happy. That's when you let your guard down. And you better realize to whom much is given, much is required. And when things are cooking and going and people's lives are being changed, if you don't think the devil isn't going to sneak in the back door, and it's going to be the mixed multitude. Now, so let me show you how this thing works. Numbers 11, 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Now, there they are. This is where they hang out. They're in the uttermost. They get as far away from the book as they can. They're in the uttermost part of the camp. They're way out there. You had the ark where the action was. And you had the three families that were ministering in the ark. Then you had the 12 tribes that were camped around that. And then you had these folks that were way out on the perimeter. Uttermost. They get as far from the book and the ministry and the church as they can. But they got all the answers. Not here you don't, sweetheart. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, which were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses. And when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Ah, here it comes. Here's their problem, and this will be every church's problem. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to this eat? Now, I want you to see this. The mixed multitude said nothing. They were silent. It was the children of Israel that they got to complain. You know why? That's what the mixed multitude does. It does it behind the scenes. It does it underground. It does it when nobody sees it. But the end result of it is it affected God's people. The mixed multitude never opened their mouth. They just went underground and destroyed God's people with their negativity. I don't like this. I don't like that. Well, that Moses. You know, he just brought us out here to die. Well, if Moses really would have done what's right, he'd have had the church set up this way. He'd have done it that way. And I'll tell you what. Moses, you know what? He, he, he preaches. He talks too much. He talks too long. He preaches too long. Well, he goes up there. He's been on the mountain, and he comes down here, and he lays these long things out. You know what? I mean, I don't know how many roasts that burned in my oven because Moses just isn't the one to shut up. No, it works. And I want you to see. And the mixed multitude was among them, fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? It wasn't the mixed multitude who went to Moses. It was the people that they infected. 
Look how stupid it has become. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. You're kidding me. Freely? You mean right after he whipped your back bare with a, with a cat of nine tails? Right after he starved you to death? Freely? What was free in Egypt? Really? You see, you cried out to get out of it, but then when the mixed multitude shows their negativity underneath the, underneath the ground, then you want to go back to the world. You think now the world was free. The cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Really? Oh, they, they just gave you that in smorgasbords back in Egypt, didn't they? Pharaoh himself carried down big trays of food so you would work hard all day so you could eat. Really? Now look at this. But now our soul, this is God's people. This is God's people based on the mixed multitude going underneath the surface, underground, and undermining Moses and what God is doing. And notice, when the people get upset, they're not only upset with God, they're upset with Moses. And when the mixed multitude gets into your world, you don't only get upset with God, you'll find fault with me. See, that's how it works. And Moses keeps saying, what are you mad at us for? You're not, this isn't against us. This is against God. That's the mixed multitude. But look at verse 6. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before I, nothing at all but the Bible. Oh, what a plight. What a, what a dire situation. Yeah, let's all go back to Egypt. Yeah, the mixed multitude is right. The mixed multitude hates this church. It hates the ministry. That's why they're never involved in it. They want to come in. They've always worked this way. They come in pretending to have some great knowledge of whatever, and they don't know squat. Most of them have lost their families, lost their marriages, lost their wives. They're in a mess. They have nowhere to go. They've been to every church, and everybody wants nothing to do with them because they all follow the same thing. Hey, I watch it. I watch it all my ministry. I'm telling you. I've watched it here. Praise God here they don't get the first base because they get their head cut off. But I'm telling you, I know how it works. And of course, uh, you, it, it, and it's always the young ones that go after. And that's why I watch out for your young ones. I see, I see somebody, you know, the Bible makes it very clear that you mark them and then you stay away from them. I mean, it's one of those things where you just don't allow their negative influence to impact the positive people in your church. If you want to be negative, if you want that, that's fine with me. That's your call. That's your choice. But don't bring your negativity into my world. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, and don't bring your heresy doctrine into my world. It's a thing where I and I know how it works. You know, they want to they want to establish themselves as a great Bible teacher, establish themselves as this, and then they start picking off the young ones. And if I see that happen, and let me tell you something. I'll kick your rear end so far I'd have to get an airmail stamp to get back. <laughs> now, the, the next thing. This is the last thing. This is a good thing. And I've got six minutes left, and I'm going to be just on time today so you can smile. <laughs> Verse 33. I may add another segment just to tick you off. The first 33. I want you to see that the manna was preserved for all generations. Not only was it a supernatural gift, not only did they have the labor to get it, and it, it was a thing that gave them the strength for the day, and they had to gather it every day, but Moses was told by the Lord to pick up a big bucket full of it and put it in the ark that it would be preserved for all future generations. That's a picture of your King James Bible being preserved down through history. 
Most people don't know this, but there's three things that were put in that ark. And if you could find the ark today, they'd still be in there. The first thing that was put in that ark was the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 25, verse 16. That represents the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The second thing that was put in was the Aaron's rod that you remember uh, in Numbers chapter 17 was a rod that budded. That's a picture of the New Testament church, the priesthood. And then the third thing from Exodus chapter 16, verse 33, was the manna. Those three things were preserved down through history. The nation of Israel, the church, and your King James 1611 authorized version, the Word of God, which liveth and abideth for heaven and earth may pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So now, now you can better understand how when you get into John chapter 6, it lays out all the way back to the Bible and to get the complete picture. I mean, if you just read it in John 6, Jesus said, I was the man. Oh, that was nice. But when you go back and you put it together, when you connect the dots, when you do serious Bible study, you see where it goes. Incredible. And this is why Christ portrayed himself as the manna from heaven that the fathers did eat. And in our Exodus study, it's a picture of the manna uh, from heaven, the word of God, supernatural. You know what? You want to think about this, and most people don't think about this. He said, he, he, he said, say there was a million and a half to two million people that came out of Egypt. That might be conservative, but, but if you would just take that, and he gave him manna for 40 years on, a, on, a, on a, just an easy equation. That would mean somewhere around 80 million tons of manna supernaturally prepared for them. Now, it's going to be nasty. But save what, 10 years? 15 years? 20 years? 30 years? How many tons of manna do you got stored up? See how it works? Now, I don't understand why you want me to quit early. See, the things like that bite. Supernatural. That's, the, that's, that's a lot of Bible, man. And today, this is a great example of how you connect the dots using the chain of evidence to put your Bible together. Simply, we didn't go to one Hebrew lexicon. We didn't open up the Greek, except in that one word. We didn't do any of those things. We just compared Scripture with Scripture, allowing the Bible to lay itself out as you just follow the text and put it all together. No Greek, no Hebrew, no education, no Ph.D., no degrees, just you, the book, and the Holy Spirit of God. And if you can ever grasp the truth of what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6, it'll revolutionize your life. You've got everything you need. Just as he sustained the nation of Israel in the Old Testament for 40 years, that book will sustain you all of your life in your journey through the wilderness of sin. And yet, Israel here and the Jews of John 6, they're just like us. Exodus 16, 1 through 3, as I said earlier, they're 15 days out. 15 days out of Egypt. 15 days out of Egypt. And already they've forgotten the great miracles that God did to bring them out. If that isn't God's people, if that isn't us, if that isn't the way we look at things, it isn't about what God did for us yesterday. We forget that faster than we could ever want. It's about what God's going to do for you today. You don't look back and see what he, where he's brought you. 
You don't look back. At, and that's the thing that makes the difference here, as far as I'm concerned. This is my church. I can say whatever I want to say about my people. And I think that's the difference that makes the difference here. The difference is that you want the book. The difference here is you want to learn the Bible. You want that manna. And it's a thing where, you know, on New Year's Eve, most people are partying and doing their all things. There have been times on New Year's Eve when we have, we have had solid four and a half, five hours of Bible study together and never blinked. We'll have guys come in and preach and singing for four and a half, five hours. Never blink. You know why? Because we understand what we got. And the manna from heaven will make the difference in your life. It'll come to the place where it'll, it'll, it'll give you everything that you need. It'll keep you from ever forgetting what God did for you when he brought you out of Egypt. I said it last week. The difference between me and most of God's people, and this is certainly not a criticism. This is just an observation. The difference between me and most of God's people is they got over the day they got saved. I never got over it. It's as fresh for me today as it was the day it happened. I could recount everything that happened that day, the changes, the things I felt, the things I thought, and I could walk you through God's hand in life and my life of bringing me right where he's got me at right now. I never forgot it. And praise God, I hope I never do. Because when we do, did you see the problem here? Verse 2 and 3. They're murmuring about Moses and the Lord. Fifteen days It doesn't take the mixed multitude long to do its damage. That's why the first line of defense for the church is that's what you watch out for. Negative people. People who are always got one crayon in life they color their life with. Black. Always complaining. Never says the good in anything. Can't give God the glory for anything. Always looking because they think they're superior in everything that they do and they know better than everybody else. And so they can't ever just concede that somebody may know something more about something than they do. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And that's what happened here. And that's what happened in John 6. Hey, these people, the Jews, who had all of the signs, who were looking for everything, they're saying, okay, how do we know for sure you're who you say you are? Duh, how about the last dead person I raised? You want to try that? But you forget. And that's something you as God's people can't ever, ever, ever do. You can never forget what he's done for you. Because the moment you do, you'll join the ranks that are negative. You too will become a mixed multitude. You too will complain about everything. You too will go out of here and say, boy, he's preached way too long today. No, next week I'll go twice as long, just for you. I used the phrase 99.99999% of the time when a guy left the church one time. Believe it or not, because I use that phrase all the time. He says, I'm sick and tired of hearing that. Now, the average pastor would say, oh, I'm sorry I offended you, and you know, I'll, just, I'll change that. I say it five times more than I said it before. I want to offend him. Because you know what? Guys like him are 99.999% of worthless. <laughs> hey, isn't God good? Yeah. Isn't it great when you can go to John 6 and see something like that and then go back to the Old Testament? Uh, it, the book of Exodus itself, chapter by chapter. But then you get into chapter 16 and you actually see what Jesus was talking about and you see the parallels. You see how, it? yes, it's an Old Testament story, but it comes alive into the New Testament that we have 
in our life and my life.